Do you have any uh, questions up to this point? This will be our last session for uh, after the first of the year. Uh, the next two Wednesdays will be off. Last week we began talking about uh, the doctrine of election, and uh, you know it's always a spirited discussion when that comes up, as I have shared with you before. And uh, it's not my what I've said, but I read somewhere that. Um, most theologians would tell you that election is probably the most despised doctrine uh, in the scripture and uh, you know it's an offense to us because um, it's just hard for us to come to the place that we could admit that that uh, apart from God doing everything there's not much hope of us being redeemed and we couch it in a lot of different ways and try to explain it away but the bottom line is it is what it is and so we kind of moved through. I didn't really mark where we finished off last week, but I think what uh, we can talk about tonight, first of all, is how Scripture goes about teaching the doctrine of election or why uh, election is taught um, at all. And, uh, and one of those reasons is that it's offered in Scripture as a comfort to us Christians. It puts before us that our salvation is secure in Christ. That if it were up to us, we somehow called the, uh, made the decision or were, the the, uh, were responsible for the decision, that we could be responsible for losing it. And uh, Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. None of these things separate us from the love of Christ. Uh, we can't, you know, we, we don't make, <clears throat> I'll try to say this the right way. Sometimes when, when you're talking about difficult doctrines, words are very important. But um, if it depends upon us, then it's, it's built on shaky ground and it can easily go in another direction. But when it's based upon God, you know, Jesus talks in John chapter 10 about his sheep knowing his voice, recognizing his voice. My sheep, he said, know me, and I know them. And he says that he puts them in his hand, and no man can snatch them away. Nobody can take them away. Um, you know, some denominations advocate for uh, a work salvation, so they believe that they can lose their salvation or forfeit that because it's based on something other than Christ. But if it's based expressly upon Him, it's His call, His decision, then uh, someone would have to change His mind and undo everything to reverse that, and we know that's not the case. So our salvation is secure in Christ. Christ also intercedes for Christians, not necessarily for the world. In John chapter 17 and verse 9, he intercedes in that high priestly prayer 
for those that belong to him. I'm not praying for the world, he says, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So election is a comfort. Uh, when Paul writes about it, he's doing it so that they might encourage one another uh, as to what the future holds, if they're not to despair over certain things going on uh, in the world, certain circumstances. It's also as a reason to praise God. Uh, Ephesians 1, verse 12, probably says this as well as anywhere. Ephesians 1, verse 12, says, well, we'll start with 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Uh, when you think about the doctrine of election, nothing brings more glory to God than the fact that He went to such lengths uh, that He, that he uh, foreknew this from before the foundation of the world, and He went through with it anyway. As I shared with you, I think, last week, uh, some people ask that question about why, if God is so sovereign, why does He allow sin into the world? Well, it was for, to forever defeat sin that sin would always be a potential obstacle out there for those that God is calling to himself. When Adam and Eve were placed in the garden, God gave them the opportunity to rebel, and they did. But that opportunity would have always been present where you're, where you're seeking love, a loving choice made by someone for you. There has to be the choice not to love, does there not? So God had that op or gave that opportunity they did sin, he knew they would sin, and he began to unpack his plan that he had foreordained before the foundation of the world to bring about salvation, to destroy sin and sin's impact upon us. So this is all a reason to praise God that he went through with this anyway. It's so One of the problems that election presents for us is that it's so foreign to the human disposition, the human mind or heart that we can't see doing that. We can't see doing something for the good of someone even when they're at enmity with us, even when they're rejecting us or uh, even persecuting us. And yet God does. Uh, election is also an encouragement to evangelism. I think someone mentioned last week, you know, how do you uh, present the gospel, you know, if God has chosen certain people to be saved, set his love upon certain people, how do you give a broad-based gospel presentation? Well, I do it with great confidence, more so than ever, because the salvation of individuals depends upon God, not upon me. And it also doesn't depend upon how um, well even I present the gospel. It doesn't depend on a performance or some sort of presentation. It depends upon the power of God working through the Word of God. So we seek to be faithful to the Word of God, trusting that His power will work in people in ways that we can't do in any other fashion on our own, right? Misunderstandings of election. We touched on some of this last week. I don't want to be uh, terribly redundant, but election, first of all, is not fatalistic and, and mechanistic like some people want to make it out to be. Election's personal, and it's addressed to people as real people. If you look in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, 
Verse 27 says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So it's not... Um, sure, I've got the right verse here. Revelation 22, verse 17. Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without, without price. The thing we were talking about last week that's so hard for us to get our minds around is how we, how we synchronize or how we put together God's absolute sovereignty. <coughs> in conjunction with man's responsibility. And I wish that I could explain it in a way that everybody could get it. But it, it, there is a mystery here. You know, I think it was um, Russ that kept asking about people getting the opportunity make a choice and we all do make a choice that's a, the Bible's clear about this there is a human responsibility but not at the expense of eroding God's sovereignty God is absolutely sovereign this is kind of similar to understanding Jesus Christ as fully God as if not man and yet he's fully man as if not God you and I go well that just sounds like gibberish you know, how do you make sense of that? We can't because we're looking at it from, from a very limited perspective. Only what we know in this dimension, this creation, and, and that's not possible based upon laws that we understand appear in our minds. But with God, it is possible. And the same thing is true here. How can God be absolutely sovereign, meaning that he's in control of everything, and yet man still has a way to exercise his responsibility in responding to God's call. Well, he does, and the point I was trying to make last week is that, but God has to give us the ability to make that response. We can't just exercise it out of thin air while we're in a depraved state. That unless God animates the heart, there is no will to follow God or to choose to follow <coughs> But once God does that, man does respond to him by exercising his decision, if you want to call it that, to follow Christ. And I know it's hard to understand. We, we talked about um, people have been debating this for hundreds and hundreds of years, and there's still no clear-cut way to, to grasp it except simply by faith on what the Word of God teaches. The gospel is preached. It's preached generally to all people. And yet, God gives ears to the people that are his elect to hear it and respond to it by faith that they might be saved and converted. And honestly, I don't know how to say it any better than that. So if that's problematic, it's probably just going to have to be problematic until God gives you some other inspiration, revelation. 
Another misunderstanding of election is that election is not based on foreknowledge of faith. Now, this is something that we Baptists have developed. Now, I won't say I won't give it all credit to the Baptists, but we Baptists have practiced maybe. And I, and I learned this early on in, in church when they were explaining predestination. Or election. And you'd say, yes, we believe in predestination. But what that means is that God looked down through the corridors of time. This is eternity past. And God saw me right here. God looked down through the corridors of time and saw me right there and saw that I would one day put my faith in him. Therefore, he has predestined, he has elected me to be a part of his adopted family. But when, when you do that, thank you, James. But when you do that, who becomes... Who becomes <coughs> Who's got the power in that scenario? Does he? Sounds to me like God's reacting to me. If God's looking down here and saying, Jerry's going to, he's going to activate some faith and believe in me, so therefore I'm choosing him. That doesn't fit the God that we see in Scripture who is a proactive God, who, who is doing the moving and the shaping and the leading. So it's more fitting to look and say, God looks down here and sees me as a lost man, but has determined from eternity past that he's going to set his love upon me in a saving, redeeming way. And that's what Scripture teaches. But because election, predestination, is such a, a hated doctrine in Scripture, we kind of try to write this thing so that we can use the terms without the meaning what Scripture says they mean. And so we jump through hoops and try to explain it. Because it's uncomfortable for me to think that if God doesn't set his love on me, I'm lost and I'm going to stay lost. Dead in trespasses and sins. We don't like that. And, and the other side of that equation that we don't like is that we don't like it because we say that it's unfair. Unfair based on what? Based on our perceptions of what fairness is. And our perceptions of fairness is that, well, all human beings then ought to have that opportunity. Why would God select out some and pass over others. Because that's what he's done. And that's what scripture says he's done. And we say, well, that's not fair. Well, Romans 9 says, how dare you, Clay, speak back to the potter that way? You know, who are you to speak back to the potter? You don't, you don't know what the purposes and plans of God are. And the fact of the matter is, is that we've all had our opportunities. Somebody mentioned Romans 1 last week, and Romans 1 says that there is enough God evident in all of creation that no man is without excuse. So, 
You remember what Jesus said to the uh, rich man in Luke 16 when the rich man died and went to, went to hell and he lifted up his eyes? He saw Lazarus, the poor man that he'd stepped over every day. And he, he said, you know, send Lazarus with some cool water to cool my tongue because I'm in torment. And he said, no, there's a, there's a chasm fixed here. There's no way that we can cross over. And he said, well, then send somebody back to warn my brothers so they, won't, so they won't suffer the same fate as me. Tells you how intense the torment of hell is. That he wanted them to send someone back to his brothers. And what did Jesus say? Huh? No. <laughs> well, yeah, he said that. He said it a little differently than that, though, didn't he? Even if somebody comes back from the dead, they won't believe. Yeah. Essentially what he's saying is he said they'll have the gospel. They have the gospel in front of them. And if they don't believe that, they're not going to believe someone coming back from, from the dead to tell them. If they don't believe in a man rising from the dead to begin with. Let's see. I want to find it. Um, yeah, he says then... Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So he's telling him, send Lazarus to my father's house to warn my brothers. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, in other words, if they do not believe the word of God, the testimony of God, Neither will they be convinced if someone rise from the dead. Now, Jesus did this with miracles all the time. He was, he was doing these extraordinary things, these divine things for people to see, and yet it didn't move them to believe. You know, it moved them to be self-serving in their needs. Faith versus being uh, inspired or, or amazed are two different things. And so there, there's God, there's evidence of God, there's the Word of God that, that's available. Romans 1 says, enough of all creation points to God that no man is without an excuse before God. So this argument of being unfair is not true. We all are deserving of God's judgment. That's the fair thing. Judgment is the fair plumb line. Judgment for everyone. The fact that God decides to set love upon some and redeem them is grace. Being saved is not a right. It's a gift, isn't it? It's, it's, a, it's a, uh, an act of grace, not an entitlement. The people who argue about unfairness are arguing from a perspective that it's an entitlement, that it's owed me, and it's not owed to any of us. So we can't argue that the people who are passed over are do anything other than judgment. Election is not based on some, doing something good in us, which again, if God looked down through the quarters of time and saw me and that it saw that I was going to believe, then my belief becomes a work. It becomes, it becomes something I'm meriting. I'm meriting God's favor be set upon me because I'm going to act or do something right. And salvation is not by an act. It's not by merit. I can't earn it. It's 
set upon me from God, it's one way and one way only. Okay, objections to election. Uh, it eliminates human choice and salvation, some people say, but I think there is uh, more than enough evidence, as we've said, that, that that's not true. Uh, you can't make human choice into a merit or a work to earn God's favor. Uh, means that unbelievers never had a chance to believe. All people have had the opportunity because there's enough of God available, the Word of God's available. There's, there's no way that anyone can stand before God at any point in time and say, I never had an opportunity to believe. It's not about the opportunity. We've all, we're all rebellious toward God, and we deserve His judgment. The fact that He reaches out to any of us is grace, not an entitlement. Election is unfair. We've dealt with that. God's will to save everyone. Um, 1 Timothy 2.4 All men is not uh, implying all men in an, exhaust, an exhaustive way, but all types or kinds of men from various places. But it still uh, points back to those that God has chosen to set his love upon. And by the other token, people will say that election then is about double predestination and that God predetermines some to be saved and predetermines that some will be lost. That's really not a fair characterization of, of the way it works. God's choice to set his love on someone, the mirror image of that, of predestination or reprobation, the doctrine of reprobation, is not that God sets his anger on someone. It's that we've already earned that right. But the fact that God passes over means that he's, he's decided to pass over and redeem those he will redeem. But there's no, there's no double judgment on those. You know, he's not, he's not intentionally saying, you're not going to be saved, or I have fixed it so you won't be saved. You're already in an unsaved role. When you come into this world, we all are. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God passes over and elects those whom he has chosen from eternity past to be recipients of his grace. That's hardly what I would qualify as pre double predestination. So that's not really, a, I don't think, a, an accurate terminology to use. It's a characterization of uh, election that's not... Uh, that's not accurate. Uh, this little article I ran across by uh, R.C. Sproul, I think is, uh, it's about three paragraphs here. I'd like to share it with you. I think it's helpful. He's basing this on Romans 8, 28 through 8, 30. And this is what he says. Defining our terms allows us to communicate with another in everyday conversation, providing us with a common frame of reference in regard to the meaning of what we're saying. When we study the things of God, we also work with definitions. So as we continue our discussion of the biblical doctrine of predestination, we need to define what predestination means. The English terms predestined and predestination come from the Greek word prorizo, a compound, a compound word that means to determine beforehand. Essentially, predestination refers to setting the destiny, goal, or end of something before it happens. 
The concept of predestination can refer to anything that happens in history. However, the most common usage of the term among Christians is in reference to salvation. What we're talking about here is the fact that God chose our final destination long before we existed. Though our arguments with others over predestination might, might not always reveal it, all Christians actually believe that God predestines some to heaven and some to hell. We only differ on the basis of that predestination. Does God look into the future, see who will respond positively to Jesus, and then choose that person for heaven? That's a prescient view. Or is predestination based entirely on God's will such that God chooses who will believe and that choice finally gives them saving faith, the Augustinian or Calvinistic view? In the prescient view, the ultimate deciding factor in our salvation is us. God chooses us for salvation only after knowing how we will respond to his gospel. The Augustinian view makes the Lord the final decisive agent in salvation. His choice establishes who will believe and who will not. Those who hold to the prescient view typically appeal to passages such as Romans 8, 28-30, noting that since God predestines those whom he foreknew, it must be that God chooses for salvation those whom he foreknew would believe. The problem, of course, is that the text does not say those whom God foreknew would believe. In fact, Paul is not talking about our Creator's knowledge of facts, but rather his knowledge of individuals. That might seem to be a subtle distinction, but it is significant. The New Testament's reference to God's knowledge and foreknowledge of people have to do with his knowing them in an intimate, salvific way. In other words, when God foreknows a person, he sets his love upon him. Our Lord's choice of men and women for salvation is based on his decision to set his love upon them, not his knowledge of what they will do. We mentioned in an earlier study that only the Calvinistic Augustine Augustinian view of predestination makes salvation due entirely to the grace of God. The Lord does not make his decision based on our decision. Rather, we choose to believe based on his prior choice of us. This leaves no room for boasting. It is not that God saves us because he knew he would make the right choice to trust in him. Instead, we make the right choice because God chose to save us. And he equips us to do just that. All right. Along with this, we move into chapter 19, which is the gospel call. The gospel call. And there's uh, a lot of scriptures I want to share with you in this. So uh, I'm going to read a lot of these to save us some time. But uh, beginning with this gospel call, we would say that it is an effective calling. An effective calling. When you think about a general calling, uh, every Sunday... We gather together, almost every Sunday, you're going to hear me at some point in time during the service, during the, during the message, you're going to hear me make what we would call a gospel call, okay? That means I'm going to point somebody to the gospel. I'm going to point them to the atonement, the work of Christ on the cross, and the need to put your faith and trust in, in Him for salvation, to be forgiven of your sin. That's a general call that goes out. There's going to be, you know, 200 people in there, 225 people in there that hear that. It doesn't matter where I go. Uh, if I've been in India, if I've been in Africa, and how many are people in the crowd, I'm going to give the gospel. I'm going to give it very clearly, sometimes more intensely than even on a Sunday morning here, where I know a lot of the people, if not 
almost all the people here on a Sunday morning make up the church. We're part of the church. But I'm still going to sow the gospel call because I never know who's there. But I'm going to broadcast it. When I go into a place in India where I'm preaching to, you know, 2,000 students, I'm going to be much more specific, much more focused on describing how salvation works and how sin works and how a person uh, desperately needs it. It's still a general call of the gospel, okay, to a lot of ears. Now, in that crowd, there's always people that are listening but not hearing. They're listening, but they're not hearing. Out here, there are people listening, but they're not hearing. And I'll tell you how I know. It's amazing, some of the conversations I have after a sermon. Most people remember a story or an illustration I told. And I wonder, and sometimes I ask, well, do you know what that was illustrating? Do you know what that was pointing to an illustration is pointing to something. It's, it's trying to bring clarification and more graphic nature to a point here. Sometimes the preacher doesn't do a good job of illustrating. So the illustration muddies the water or it doesn't do a good job of pointing to it. Other times people are listening but they're not hearing. It's much like when Jesus was speaking in parables. And he said he did it on purpose. So that those who knew him would really hear what he was saying and follow along and others would be confused by it. The same thing is true. We can't hear what God is saying to us without the intervention of the Spirit of God working in us. It's true for Christians. It's true for lost people. The Bible says, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit when he comes, he's the one who's going to illumine you. He's going to remind you. He's going to bring to your attention the things I've said, and make it clear to you. For the person who is lost, dead in their trespasses and sins, they may be hearing, but they're not hearing here. They may hear the words intellectually. They can process them. But spiritually, it's not going anywhere until the Spirit of God illumines, till the Spirit of God pulls back the veil and allows them to hear and have the, the ability, the faith, to respond to what they've heard. For the Christian, the same thing is true. If we've got sin in our lives, if we've got other things going on in our lives, we're distracted, we may be hearing, but we're not hearing because we're not walking in step with the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God is what is key to making known to us what Christ is saying. Right? Is that right, Paul? Am I right? Okay. So the, the Holy Spirit is like this gigantic spotlight that's shining on the Word of God and showing us what God is saying. For the lost person, he's blind. He can't see it until his eyes are opened. And only God can do that. For the Christian, if we've got other things blocking our view, we can't see it until we turn to God and He takes it away because we realize we're supposed to be walking with Him. We want to hear. We confess our sin. Our vision is cleared up, and now we see what he's saying because the Spirit of God has illumined us and made us able to understand it. So if we come out after sitting under the teaching of God's Word, and the only thing we remember was a joke or, 
you know, a trivial illustration or something of that nature, and we didn't hear the truth that God was trying to put before us, either the preacher's done a poor job and allowed the illustration or whatever it was to become monumental and the truth or principle of God to become dwarfed and put behind some shadow to where it's more difficult to understand, or we're not, we're not having the Spirit of God working in us. Does that make sense? Okay. Effective calling, an efficacious calling. Effective. What does that mean? <coughs> Means it works, right? Means it works. So we have a general calling. So I give these all the time. I give them in India. I give them over there in a crowd of 2,500 people. There will be any number of people that do not respond, do not get it. They don't. They heard a general gospel call, but it wasn't effective. That means that God did not give them the ability to respond, to hear and respond to what he was saying. Then there's some that will have an effective calling. Same message, same opportunity. One's general, one's effective. The general one, everybody heard. The effective one, only those God is dealing with personally can respond to it because he supplies what they need to respond. 2,500, 1,200 of them may bow their heads and repent and receive Christ. Some of those may be going through the motions because they intellectually heard what I was saying but didn't spiritually get it. But out of that 1,200, there's some that there was an effective calling upon their life. That means that God reached through the darkness, reached through the callousness of a hard, cold heart, and illumined it so that they could believe on it. And then they expressed that by calling on him in confession and prayer because of what he's initiated in them. Effective calling. Romans 1, 7 to all those in Rome, Paul said, who are loved by God and called to be saints. Called to be saints. It's an effective calling. Romans 8.30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Effective calling. 1 Thessalonians 2, 12. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's a picture of the effective call. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life which you are called and about which you made the good profession in the presence of many witnesses. An effective calling is an act of God. It's not an act of us. Okay? It's about God acting on a heart, on a life. Effective calling. It's an act of God. Secondly, an effective calling guarantees a response. It's an act of God. 
it guarantees response. General call doesn't do that, but an effective calling does. Romans 8.30 again, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those who he elected, those whom he chose, he called effectively. And those whom he called, he justified. See the implication? Those whom he's called here are justified. God doesn't waste his effective calling. Effective calling equals a response. Certain to happen. 2 Thessalonians 2.14, to this, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 16.14, remember the story of Lydia. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's probably as graphic a picture as you have of the effective call of God. Paul went down. You remember he went into the city? He's talking around. People are saying, look, you want to talk all this spiritual stuff? Why don't you go out there to the river where these ladies get together? They're, they're worshipers of God. Go down there and talk to them and leave us alone. He goes out there and finds Lydia and her little cohort meeting together. And they don't know Christ. They may have some idea of a deity that they're trying to worship. They're, they're practicing religion. But the Bible says the one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's a great picture. What scripture teaches is that no powerless human calling is at work here. This is a, this is a calling. This is a summons from the king. Now, if you... Um, you know, if someone stuck their head in the door right now and, and said, Bill, come here. You know, in front of all of us, you'd probably get up and go, you know, to see what they wanted. But, um, you know, if you're like my grandkids or, you know, or our kids do, and you say, hey, come here a minute. And say, I'll be there in just a minute, you know. Or they act like they don't hear you. You've seen that unpacked before, right? Had, had somebody do that. You know, a summons from somebody that, doesn't have any authority over you or any esteem with you, may be ineffectual, not have much to do with it. But if we were sitting in here and we got a telegram or a wire officially delivered by someone from the governor's office and said, Governor Deal is summoning you, Phil, come now. We've got a car, we're going to take you to it. You get up and go. I don't care what your political persuasion is. You know, if the governor sent you a summons... For now, wouldn't you go? I think most of us would get up and go. And as you go up, you know, if we had a king in our country who sent you a summons, you'd go. You'd be expected to go. Now, you multiply that exponentially to the king of the universe, whom is God. When God gives an effectual calling, it's a summons from the king of all creation saying, come to me. That's going to be penetrating. It's going to be effective. And it's, it's not something that we would neglect or refuse. It requires a response. It guarantees a response. Because it's not 
just a human asking for your compliance in something. It's an order coming from a sovereign ruler. Effective calling is an act of God the Father speaking through the, the human proclamation of the gospel in which he summons people to himself in a way that they respond in saving faith. This calling has the capacity to draw men out of the kingdom of darkness and bring them into God's kingdom into full fellowship with him. 1 Corinthians 1.9 God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son Jesus Christ our Lord. John 6.44 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6.37 Right before that Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You know, when you really start reading the Bible with this lens in place, you'd be amazed at how much conversation there is along these lines. And so it begins to unravel some of the lies that we tell ourselves as human beings. It's also internal and particular. There's an effective call of the gospel that's internal. There's a general gospel call that's external. We've said all of that, and I'm not going to beat that horse anymore. Secondly, the gospel calling is the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel. So we all here tonight probably know the facts of salvation. There are three important elements that must be included in human preaching of the gospel that God has deemed to use. The facts of salvation... All have sinned. Everyone has sinned. No one, no one is apart from that. We all come in with a sin nature. Now, what does that mean? Um, if you've got this straight rod, we might call this a righteous rod. Okay? Straight, pure, and true. And this is the way that God intends for man to be. This is the shape that God intends for man to have. When Adam and Eve sinned, I'm going to change this. I'm going to do it this way. This is man. He was built, designed, to be connected to God in a perfect relationship, straight and true and pure, righteous. This is, this is what God has designed. When man sinned, something happened. What happened is that this became bent. In fact, it became bent away from God. Man's no longer pointed toward God when he comes into this world. He's pointed away from God. He's been broken. He's been bent. And his people talk about, well, you know, you got free will. You got free will. Yes, we have free will. But your free will is dependent upon your nature. And you will do what your nature compels you to do, which is always rebel against God. There's nothing within a human being, when they are born into this world, there is absolutely nothing inside that makes us want to pursue God or turn to God or receive God or be with God. 
Adam and Eve gave us a picture of that. When they sinned against God, what did they do? Said God came into the garden looking for them just like he did every day. We spend time walking together and talking together in the cool of the garden, right? And where were Adam and Eve? They ran away. They ran away to hide. They ran away to find leaves to try to cover up their shame, their nakedness before God. They had a bent now away from God, not toward God. Always before, they welcomed fellowship with God. But after sin, they were bent away from him. It's like somebody turning their back to them. You ever seen a child do that to an adult, a parent? A parent's trying to talk to them, the child turns their back. The parent, turn back around here, you know, when I'm talking to you. You know? And you might turn them back around, but inside they're still turned away, aren't they? They're still closed off. Well, this is the picture of man before God. So what Jesus came to do, the scripture says, was to make us this way again. And that's only accomplished by the cross. Through the shed blood of Christ can we be restored to this rightful position where we want God again. Until God moves upon our hearts, we can't want him. We don't want him. We won't want him. Only he can put that in us to want him again, to make us straight. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The penalty for sin is death. Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins. The invitation to respond to Christ in repentance and faith. Jesus speaks now, not just at the end of a service during an altar call. This is something that's going on in the heart and the life of someone not just in a church service. In fact, there are very few people that get saved anymore in a church service. A lot of the people that you see that come that we baptize, it's because this happened in, you know, they may be listening to a lot of messages. They may be listening to Sunday school lessons. They may be encountering people one-on-one who are talking to them about Christ. But, there are very few people who get saved in there in that 10 minutes when we extend a call on a Sunday morning. And it may always have been that, that way. You know, you go back to the days of revivalism here in this country, and we were working up a lot of emotional responses to things. Who knows? You know, whether that's, that's really the way it ought to be done. It's not sensitive to time. It's sensitive to God's time. When God moves upon a person's life and, and penetrates them. So that's the invitations when the Holy Spirit gives it, not when the preacher gives it or anybody else. A promise of forgiveness and eternal life as a result of someone who confesses Christ, who agrees that I'm running away from God and I don't want to do that anymore. Something's happened inside. I don't want to do what I was doing. I want to do something different. Something's changed in here. So now I want to go this way. Well, Christ makes it possible. He makes it possible. He restores me. He reconciles me to God. He makes me appear to God in His righteous robes and my sin is dealt with on the cross. Now I have forgiveness and eternal life. The importance of the gospel call. The doctrine of the gospel call is important because if, it were, if there were no gospel call, we could not be saved. Romans 10.14 says, How are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? gospel call is important also because through it God addresses us in the fullness of our humanity. He does not simply save us automatically. 
without seeking for a response from us as whole persons. Rather, he addresses the gospel call to our intellects, our emotions, and our wills. He speaks to our intellects by explaining the facts of salvation to us in his word. He speaks to us in uh, our emotions by issuing a heartfelt personal invitation to us to respond. He speaks to our wills by asking us to hear his invitation and respond willingly in repentance and faith to decide to turn from our sins and receive Christ as Savior and rest our hearts in him for salvation. The gospel call, that's not hard for us, is it? Not like election, right? But it's the first step. You remember last week I put the order of salvation up here? It begins with election, then it goes with the gospel call. God, in his infinite wisdom and eternity past, set his love upon James Buchanan. Buchanan. And then, at some point in James' life, God extended the gospel call effectually to his heart. There may have been times before that that he heard it generally. But one day, God moved upon him and he heard it effectually. It began to change him. So then, with that happening, he confessed his sin outwardly. He was converted, we would say. There was an outward manifestation of what God had just done in him. Now this could all happen seemingly instantaneously. But there is an order to it. Questions? Comments? Arguments? We spend a lot of time talking about this um, in a class like this, a doctrinal class, where we're trying to get our minds around it. And sometimes I think we, uh, we can spend too much time focusing on these things and breaking it apart, when in reality, for most of us, what we see is something that happens almost instantaneously. So I think for us, the key thing is to understand that God's in control of this. God's in charge of this. And God determines whom he's in pursuit of to save. He's done the work. He has extended the mercy to allow us to continue to live even though we deserve judgment. And so he certainly has the right to extend his effective gospel call onto whomever he wants, right? That's the way I look at it. But we don't have to think about it in these terms. Again, going back to last week's question about, well, you know, when you're up in front of people and you're giving the gospel call, how do you do how do you do that? You know, there's somebody out there that is elect. You don't know who they are. That's right, I don't. It's not my problem. My job is to preach the word, to point <laughs> to Christ, to give testimony to the word of God, because the word of God is the power of God, and the power of God is what's going to do all of this. I don't have to sit there and break it down in my mind and say, wonder who here today's elect. I don't know who it is. And I won't know who it is until I see the outward manifestation of their confession and receiving of Christ. Then I go, oh, there was one. That's somebody that God elected to his salvation eternity past. But on this side of it, I have no idea of who it is. So I assume that everyone I preach to is among the elect until God does differently. That's up to him to sort them out. 
I don't know their names. I don't know their serial numbers. I don't know their addresses. I just preach to whom God puts me in front of to preach and let him sort out who will and who won't. Right? That makes sense? Questions? Oh, man, awful quiet. This is a tough, this is a tough one, right? And as I said last week, I, I hope, you know, and I, I appreciated Russ last week being able to speak up and, and ask questions and even debate about it because there was a time where I had to do that before I came to peace with it, you know. It's hard when you think you've got something settled to go back and have to redo it and rethink it, you know. But I, I was laying the blame, if you remember right, I was laying it on our pulpits over the last 100 years, 120 years, that we haven't done a, a good job from the pulpit of teaching the Word of God to our people. And we've allowed some of these important doctrines to either go by the wayside in people's minds or explain it away in, a, in an unhealthy and unfair way, you know, not doing justice to it. Because it's hard to get down in and wrestle with some of these things because we can't really put a nice bow on it where it feels like, you know, we're still a little bit uncomfortable with it. That's okay. And it's okay not to be all the way on the other side where you go, yeah, I got it, I got it, I got it. I'm, I'm with you. I'm 100% I'm with you. It's okay to be in the between and saying, God, I don't understand it. I'm not sure of it. It doesn't make sense to me. It's difficult for me. And let God bring you along as he will to understanding of these things. We're all a work in progress, are we not? One day we'll all understand it perfectly, or as perfectly as God wants us to understand it. But in the meantime, it's going to have challenges. Remember, if we could understand God, he wouldn't be much of a God, would he? If we could understand him com completely, he'd just be like us. We all, we all good? All right, I'm done. <laughs> We're limited. He's unlimited. We're finite. He's <coughs> infinite. That's exactly right. So, got the next two Wednesdays off. Make good use of them. Start checking into McShane's Bible reading plan. Make a commitment to read through the Bible next year using it. Something to investigate and make a commitment on going into the new year. Monday night. Monday night. Yes, sir. One thing I've been thinking about with the 